At some point, yes, it was my first public appearance was in Shechen,、mm-hmm. and that was quite by accident, really.、Uh, but it was felt to be a good idea to show the Polish people that Dave Brubeck, a star from the West, was not afraid、mm-hmm. to bring his wife and children. So my brother Michael and I were literally pushed on stage, and even at 10. I had enough professional sense to know that if you go on stage, you don't turn and run away. You go do, you do something. You do. So, what did you do? Wave? I went to my father and he said,、uh, okay, take the A train. And that, of course, was the theme song for Willis Conover's、mm-hmm. Voice of America, which is the big reason that there was an audience for the Dave Brubeck Quartet. In Poland in 1958. And it's an easy song to play. So,、uh, so you did? We did, yes. <laughs> and then you, you played with your brothers ever since, I suppose. Yes, off and on. When I moved to South Africa, it was less frequent、mm-hmm. that we played together. But yes, ever since. Every year we do a tour together, and that's called Brubeck's Play Brubeck, which also uses Dave O'Higgins on saxophone most、Perfect. of the time. But they have their own, their own lives, their own groups, and we don't live near each other. And we haven't for a long time because、It's... I lived in South Africa, then I moved to England. Chris is in Wilton, Connecticut, where I grew up. Chris is a composer, bass player, trombonist, and Daniel's a drummer. No one rebelled like, I'm going to be a doctor, the black sheep of the family. I think we all. Had to struggle for、mm-hmm. trying to f- find our identities. But as far as rebelling against music, no, we didn't because it was something we had together. Like you could compare it to a family where everybody likes playing tennis or everybody likes playing basketball. That doesn't mean you're predetermined your whole life, your career, that you'll be professional, but it's something you do together. So that's really bound us together. From childhood until now. Well, in those days, he was touring so much that there wasn't really a lot of preparation involved because the group was so close knit. They were tight. They were playing hundreds, of, literally hundreds of nights a year. And when he had a new original piece, they would just run it, you know, a few times. But I did have the, the privilege of hearing them rehearse at home. And my brothers and I always used to really pay attention to this because when they played something, even for the first time and even not really knowing it, they were such good musicians that it sounded good. So the question was well, that was all right. There's no obvious mistakes. How can it be better? And then we would see them refine details until it was like, Really polished, but still very free. The performances had a lot of improvisation. Yeah, exactly. Did they improvise at home as well? Did you hear it as a, as a young musician at that time? Yes, but, but not a lot. The point、mm-hmm. was more to get the details of the arrangement, which really means the beginning and the、mm-hmm. ending and the order of solos, get exactly the right tempo. So, yeah, that, that, that's what we heard. Is that how you learned to, how to compose? Observing your father? To a large extent, but I had an uncle, Uncle Howard, who 
was also a composer and a conductor, and he was the head of the uh, music department at Palomar College in San Diego, California. And one summer, when I was 13, 14, he gave me some very basic lessons on theory and orchestration, but he explained everything so well. And I was surrounded with it, of course. Yes. He explained everything so well that I just sort of got it. I, you know, just kind of understood how the harmonic system works and the sections of the orchestra. And of course, there's a lot I don't know, but I'm just saying from an early time that didn't seem inaccessible to me. You know, it was there. If I wanted to go deeper, I could, and I had a basis for understanding it. I've got the feeling that it's like a language. A baby doesn't really need to figure out the syntax and sentences. So you were surrounded by music in the same way as you were surrounded by English, for instance. Yes, you could say that. That was almost a disadvantage because... Oh, I'll, I'll tell you why. It's a peculiar thing. Mm -hmm. I don't regard myself as a very good pianist, technically, because I didn't understand that it was hard. <laughs> Do, do you know what way. I mean? So, you know, I didn't know it really takes a, a lot of work to develop uh, finger strength and all of that. Because everybody, not literally everybody, but it just seemed in everybody my environment. Everybody in your world, yeah. Yeah, could just do it. My grandmother was a really good classical pianist, and she'd come and visit us. And in the afternoon, she'd just reel off some Bach or Chopin. Or if my uncle came, the same thing. And... They didn't understand so well how Dave could improvise, but they, you know, they were interested in that. And people talked about music. They talked about composers. You know, it was just in the air I breathed. She just yes. didn't basically know another world. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's really hard to answer that question. Also, he was he was so good mm -hmm. that it was hard to detect when he was practicing and when he was just playing. But I would say what sounded the most like practicing to me was like he would compose something and then try to get it under his fingers. But he had that kind of facility where it didn't seem like he was working hard to do any of this. He could just do it. I, I was aware he was working on things because mm -hmm. he would repeat them. Or, as I say, test them different ways. Fast, slow, different key. But it was just his mind was like that. You know, lots, but sometimes it wouldn't be very much about specific things, but about attitude. Regard every performance as important, for instance. You know, that your integrity as an artist is important, whether you're playing for five people or 5,000. You, you want to feel that you did your best. Now, this is, this is a strange thing. I think he was so talented, he didn't have to practice phrases. And I think I would have been better off if I'd learned some good licks. But he would, he would say comments if he would hear me like practicing something like that. And he'd say, you know, people don't pay to hear you play what you practiced. They, 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 you know, what excites people is to hear you creating something. So don't, you know, just learn some phrases and then go and play them. Uh, get your mind into that space where you're creating something, which means you have to know your material very well. 
but he discouraged developing it systematically. He said, you, you know, get into the emotion mainly. That gives me the impression that he must have been, must have had this incredible focus capacity to be there at that precise moment, at that precise reality, and just be 100% over there and oh, yeah, nothing yeah. else. Right, and he would get so excited by playing. He would be finding things that he'd never heard before while he's actually performing. I mean, and, and that wouldn't be 100% of the time. Like, say, if it's a TV show and he's been well briefed by the producer and says, we're going to talk for 30 seconds. I'm going to introduce the group. When I walk away from the piano, I want you to start and it, the segment has to be over in three minutes and 32 seconds. He, he would be able to do that, but that wasn't what excited him as a musician. The motivation came from being a soldier in World War II. He was an infantryman. He was with the American Army. It went from England, Belgium, France, ended in Germany. And there was something that he could find in himself if he worked and developed it and studied classical music, developed as a jazz musician, read deeply in philosophical and religious subjects. He wasn't just interested in uh, music. I mean, this may sound too idealistic in, in this kind of day and age, but he really felt there were ways that uh, arts could bring humanity to a different kind of vision, could raise it above the level where it was, that there should never be another war. And, you know, and the whole, the whole time, he, you know, he was doing his, his duty, but he never talked about fighting Germans or hating Germans, or, but it was, you know, with respect to their culture and how they could lose their culture and become what they became. And that was, you know, important to get on, on a different level. And he could find that level as a musician and try to share it as an artist. So his, his focus was not to be against something, but pro something. Yeah, yeah that's a good way to put it, yes. Well, today I just I just read this phrase. Um, he must have been one of the happiest and most fulfilled musicians of all time, and you seem to like it. That's oh, I by like Philip it. Norman. I like it very much. I, first of all, as a man, he met my mother while they were at university. And it's amazing how they completed each other. That's right. Yeah, and they had a wonderful long marriage. They had six children. I say this very humbly, but I believe we did enough to make our parents proud that they saw that we were worthy of them in some way. Not not as great as them, but at least we continued with their mission in life. Yeah, today at the backstage, I asked you about it. Do you, do you see your work as continuing the mission of your father? Yes, in a different way. I'm mm -hmm. not as uh, creative, but... Um, let me check it on the album. <laughs> Dave Brubaker, Darius Brubaker, Darius Brubaker. No, you seem to be composing. Well, yes, <laughs> I am. I, no, I can, I can do it. Okay. But what I can do is based on a platform that not only Dave, but his generation created. You know, it's mm -hmm. not my fault, but, you know, we weren't there at the beginning of, yeah. of all this. You know, it now exists. But I've continued, I think, you know, trying trying to represent his idealism in, in a positive way and reach people and be friendly and 
in the educational world, I started the first jazz education at a university level in South Africa. Yeah, and that's I think that's this is exactly where his ideas, I mean this ethical part of Brubeck's mm. playing came in handy because those were the eighties in South Africa. Yes. So the most turbulent time you can imagine. It was indeed. And really interesting. To be there. Yeah. To it, unify people, to show them new ways, to, to help young people. Yes. And also there were many people in South Africa who felt the same way, white and black. But I had this immunity of having a famous name and being foreign. So I could say whatever. And, what, and you, would, you, you would actually pull it off. Yeah, yeah. I would get away with it because, you know, we looked at the possibility of getting into trouble and thinking, okay, the worst they can do is kick me out of the country. They cannot you know, hurt you physically. They cannot yeah, imprison you. They, yeah. You will not suffer as if you were the local person. Yeah, that's right. So local people, you know, saw this. And, um, well, you know, I, I, I worked with some important people and, and some very, very good musicians. Decades. They, those were, yeah. We were talking about decades yes. of uh, happy career, of successful mm -hmm. career, but also helping young musicians to develop their skills and presenting them later on in the world, in America and in Europe. Right. And, and my father also helped with that because <laughs> when we had a very good student band by 1989, we had a really killer band. It was really, really good called the Jazzanians. And... It was, I'm trying to keep the story short, but it was really politically complicated because it was a mixed race or multiracial mm -hmm. student band coming from South Africa. There was a cultural boycott going on. Whether we should come to America at all was actually discussed by the black representatives in the U.S. Congress. But there was a buzz building up. So when we did come, there was uh, television, you know, which was a big deal. Network television, CBS, NBC. And fortunately, they were really, really good musicians and, 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 and great people. Mm -hmm. And they spoke English well. They made a great impression. They behaved perfectly. Uh, that sounds patronizing. But, 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 you know, what I mean is, you know, we're talking about young people who had not traveled overseas and... Suddenly, they're representing their country. And no focus is on them. Yeah, yeah and a huge mm -hmm. focus on them. And my parents had a huge house in Wilton, Connecticut, because they had six kids, and of course, they had money. And um, so th that became our headquarters. You know, we just <laughs> took over their house, and they were so hospitable, and they helped us. In, in, and not only once, I'm describing the first time, but then it became an established custom every few years that this would happen. And they, they were just completely open to it and used their connections to help us. There was a photo that actually it was, it, it came out in the 70s, but you still mm -hmm. see it once in a while on T-shirts or calendars um, of the Earth seen from the moon coming up just like you might see the moon rise over the horizon of the earth and the, you mm -hmm. know and this was earth rise seen from the moon that just gave me a, a great idea about perspective that if you look at the 
Earth from far away. It would, <laughs> or suppose you were even some kind of other intelligent being looking at the Earth from far away. Uh, what would you think? Yeah, what would you think? You would think, well, if there's intelligent life there, you would see us as one kind of entity. You wouldn't see us in terms of uh, nationalities. Or that, races or, or religions. Races. Yeah. And then that made me think, well, well, we can do that now, actually. We don't have to imagine <laughs> intelligence in outer space. We can just be intelligent here and... And we're 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 moving toward that. This is a, not a good period that we're in at the moment. But since we're talking about it, and since mm. it's so obvious for yeah. us, and since today on one stage we could see people from different continents, then yeah. maybe it's not that bad. Right, uh, right, and and also we're connected enough to realize that we have common problems. I mean, climate change is not a political problem, but it has to be addressed through actions on a national and therefore political level. So in the context of the last, say, five to ten years, maybe we're not in a good place, but in the context of, say, 500 years since the Italian Renaissance to now look at education, life expectancy, communication, global trade, poverty, by all of those objective measures, we're on an upward trend. Let's come back to music. My last question would be about the tune I saw your father. Yeah. Can you tell me something about it? Oh, that's kind of a joke. Um, when when we <laughs> when we do gigs, very often, especially in the in in the UK, people will come. They want a signature on the CD, shake hands, and very often they they'll say, say, "I saw your father," <laughs> and this became a question that. It, it didn't become a question, but I mean a phrase where mm. at the end of a gig and everyone's gone home and we're packing up the drums and loading the car, my wife w or someone in the band would say, well, how many I saw your fathers <laughs> were there? You would actually be able to make a bet in, yeah, in the, within yeah. the band. And uh, mm. so Catherine yeah. at one point said, just write a tune called I Saw Your Father. <laughs> and it really works in 5-4. I saw your father. And you know, and it's sort of jazzy where the accents mm. fall. So it's 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 kind of comedy in a way. And something completely different, before it's too late, you decided to end tonight's show yes. with this tune mm -hmm. and I find it particularly romantic I'd say, but also very touching. Before oh, it's too you. late. Too late for what? To say the things you need to say to someone who's close to you. My wife wrote the words. And musically, yeah, you say romantic, it's a bit cinematic. I, I imagine that it would make a great James Bond theme song because there's always a love interest and there's always this kind of... Before you know, it's too late. Yeah, it's a good title, right? Before it It's Too Late by Ian Fleming, <laughs> except he didn't write it. But. No, it was Brubeck. Yeah. <laughs>